Hello everyone and welcome to this episode in our podcast series of Getting to Better Together, hosted by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership of the University of the Sunshine Coast, or SIDSL as we are better known. And I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding further, I wish to acknowledge the Gubby Gubby people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respect to their leaders past, present and emerging. Well, more than 18 months have passed now since we first started here in the Centre to discuss the idea of publishing a regular podcast. Our motivation, fueled particularly by our extensive experience of working internationally, was in the first instance to explore a virtual medium for engaging together with those beyond our campus in pursuit of what we referred to as responsible, sustainable development, which is inclusive of we humans and the rest of nature alike. Our focus would be on seeking how we might all collaborate together in addressing the pressing issues of the day. We wouldn't present ourselves as experts, bringing solutions to straightforward technical and social problems, but literally as fellow citizens, joining in a quest for getting to better together in circumstances where the issues are anything but straightforward. Our aim was to join and, if appropriate, promote general conversations about what's happening in the world around us, in all of its complexity and its messiness, as indicators of what we might all need to do to make it a better place for everyone. To contribute to the sustainable and inclusive development of a world that's characterised by what's been referred to as enriched lives, human solidarity and a resilient biosphere. In the event, and for a whole host of reasons, this goal of what we might call action-oriented public conversations, or discourse for cooperative action, is proving to be much more difficult than we had, perhaps naively, anticipated. We still find ourselves in the somewhat passive role of talking from here inside to there outside, not having found too many opportunities so far to join more interactively with those outside, which of course includes you, the listeners. But perhaps that's an inevitable constraint of this podcast process to active participation. What does seem to have found positive support, however, are interviews with guests who are bringing diverse perspectives and rich insights that are entirely relevant to, to this discourse, and today's episode represents a wonderful example of precisely that. Here's the context. A few days ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, released their second report from this, its sixth assessment cycle. We've already discussed the first report with Ian Lowe, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Stephanie Fischel to talk today about this version, number two. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation, Richard. The news uh, this report uh, carries is not good, is it? It's not good, but it also has a framing in which I think helps us all understand the results a little bit better, putting it in the coupling of human institutions mm -hmm. with the way in which we understand planetary systems. Okay. In some ways, our movements forward here feel a little bit more clear um, if the direness of their warnings have not changed their ability to interact with the human systems that might change the way in which we mitigate climate change. Um, the climate change issues we have is, I think, pretty clear. So this is all particularly familiar territory to you. Um, for those who haven't met you, 
Dr. Stephanie Fischel is a lecturer in politics and international relationships at uh, USC. Her interests include ecology, environmental justice, environmental theory and law, with a special focus on climate change and biodiversity. She, like many others, refer to this era as the Anthropocene, and perhaps um, it would be useful to explore that word and the notion a little clearer, because it's not a word that's thrashed around all that much. It, it's a word that gets thrashed around maybe a little too much oh. <laughs> in academic circles, but I'm happy to, to explain it a little bit more. The Anthropocene is the idea and started um, basically through scientific understandings of the way in which humans have become um, agents able to change the Earth system itself. So if you think about this in terms of, I think, um, an analogy with how you shift the temperature in your house, right? Okay. Before the Anthropocene, we would have been able to like put on blankets, take some, um, put on something lighter if it gets hot, but that would be the our ability to change and mitigate our relationship to Earth systems like weather and climate. Now we can actually move over to that temperature dial mm -hmm. and turn it up. So I think that helps. It's it is a geologic geological epoch within the Holocene, and it also shows that um, not only are humans, and we should say some humans, um, responsible, and some humans more responsible for climate change, but it puts the burden of change and the burden of responding to these negative influences humans have had on our planetary systems back on us. Okay. Um, as in even if we're not, um, it's a good way to put it, we may not be the most capable now with our institutions as we see them, but we do have the capacity to respond. Right. Uh, one of the quotes um, from that report by Hanks Otto Furtner, who is the co-chair of the working group, is that climate change is a threat to human well-being and the health of the planet. It goes on to say, any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. It's pretty daunting. It is pretty daunting. And I think watching the reports over a period of time, one sees a shift in the strength of the language. Most of this report focuses on a very high probability of changes happening. Right. But one of the things I think this report does in ways that really bring some clarity to how we can... Um, be a part of the change that this report shows us requires is that while the cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal, right? We know that climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health, as the report says. Right. Um, and any further delay is um, has to be done through global action and mitigation to be able to not miss this brief and rapidly closing window for our sustainable future. But this report really does a wonderful job of looking at the ways in which social justice is already well embedded into the ways we have to respond. Mm -hmm. So rather than oftentimes we see um, a stepping away from it saying science has done its job, everybody better get busy, scientists right. are, are have done what they needed to do, right. this report very much engages with the idea that we need to have multi-sector, um, multi-level, and especially local knowledge and indigenous knowledge put into these systems that help us adapt. Because another really important piece of this, I think, to remember is we have a closing window and we also can't afford any what they call maladaptive right. um, responses. So not only do we have a closing window, we don't have time to do it over and over again, right. which means much of what we do 
um, has to be done right the first time, and it has to be done with all parties involved right. as a global effort um, rather than one that seeks to just um, keep it within national boundaries or national right. responses. What, what does it take for us to sort of get over that hurdle, if you will? Because patently, obviously, we haven't been acting, even though we've known about this now for decades. We really haven't done much, and here we are now again, up to our, um, our eyeballs in water from rain which is seemingly incessant. What does it take to get us to change? I think um, there's a lot of places in which research is being done around the individual psychology about what it takes to make changes. In part, it's because we're dealing, we're dealing with institutions and systems that might be broken and corrupt previous to trying to enter them for these adaptive, you know, risk assessments. I think it's a good example here in Australia with the floods. Right. Um, the response, the early warning systems and the mitigation in flood-prone areas wasn't what it should have been. Right. Right? There was no money in that system. Um, the federal government's response was um, light, to say the least. And then the actual response, wh when it happens, is also a problem. Mm -hmm. So in part, um, I think we see people's feeling that they're separated from the politics that can make changes, mm -hmm. then makes you feel even more apathetic. And this is happening across multiple systems of engagement for us, right? Yeah. Democracy feels pretty broken. Yes. And we often go to vote. We go to vote every three years and you feel like nothing changes and the people who are put in office aren't representing you. Mm -hmm. So at some level, I think one of the things I'd love to stress today after looking through this report in some detail is that if we fix some of the other things that aren't climate change problems, will fix a lot of our yeah. ability to, to respond to climate change problems. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, that, that raises the, the issue that when we talk about adaptation, which means changing in response to, and mitigation, which is to try and change the, the impact in the first place or the force in the first place, we're really missing a higher order point, aren't we? We're not really saying, which is really what I get to your inferring, we're not really sort of saying, well, wait a minute, maybe it's the entire way we live our lives rather than simply emissions, for instance. Is this the real challenge that we're really not sitting back and thinking much more profoundly about how we live in the world? Yeah, I mean, I'm a theorist first and foremost, so I spend a lot of time thinking about um, the broader question. And this, um, bear with me for a minute, it may seem a little unconnected, but what does it mean to be human? Right. And our meanings of what it means to be human or not an animal, right? Sometimes forget that we are non-human animals among many other species. The ways in which we've created systems around, a good example here is property, right? Mm -hmm. Our notion that land can be owned as something abstract is problematic. And I think all Australians will feel this in their bones, right? right. Living in Lismore, is different than living in Darwin, which right. is different than living in Sydney. Right. So we do know that these abstractions we've made about land and property and ownership rights have come at the expense of our natural systems, but are so deeply embedded into the way we understand the world. It's how we are human. And to change that relationship between how we understand ourselves within the system, I think one of the ways that the, the report puts it is it um, its framing is that we are coupled systems 
And I, I like that idea. That's kind of a scientific way to say we have to rethink our connections too. They say we're coupled systems that are interactive among climate, ecosystem, including biodiversity, and human society. So it puts it on a spectrum of ways in which we could understand the world differently. And we've generally said, that's nature. We're humans. There's no connection. So sometimes I think this, I'm, and I'm not saying smaller to diminish them, but some of the ideas of political will and the movement to make change ends up getting stymied in these long histories of how humans see themselves as separate, which isn't necessarily the case in other ways of seeing the world, other cosmologies, other worldviews, other legal systems, right? For example, indigenous that would see people and land as country, right? And the, the land needs you and that's what makes the land country. And we don't have that necessarily in systems that were imported from Western Europe when colonizers right. came. Where's morality in, in all this? How do we know what we're doing right and whether we're wrong? And if we know we're doing wrong, why do we keep doing it? I think some of it is if you if you think back and one of the things the report really stresses all the way through is if you acting with the thoughts and the care and of the most vulnerable mm -hmm. either within your community itself or as a global idea especially those um, communities that face what they call very hard limits if you're an island nation, for example, right. it's a pretty hard limit, right, of what you can do. Mm -hmm. Now there's no levees that are going to work. There's no, th those islands will disappear. That that kind of vulnerability is put first. And I think this is echoed in what um, the Catholic Church and the Pope, especially putting out that encyclical saying climate change is a social justice issue and a social justice issue is a moral issue. Mm -hmm. And whether you're religious or not, I think, to come from the standpoint, if you fix things for those that are the most affected, it's going to have a kind of opposite effect. We usually think of that trickle down. We're talking about a trickle up. And so that, I think, makes, um, if not moral action, certainly an ethical framework that allows you to build around the people who are going to get hurt first and spend less time thinking about how we find safety for the ones who might get hit last mm. by these climate changes. I was... Um... Thinking the other day, in fact, I'm more than thinking, I'm, I'm writing a paper about moral issues in, in agriculture. And one is faced, of course, with the immediate dilemma of having to feed people in the concept of social justice, but at the same time, knowing that in so doing, we're putting pressures on the biophysical environment. And it crossed my mind that Australia is one of the few places in the world where, unlike most places where agriculture was a slow transition, if you will, from under and gathering, in Australia, we've actually got a date when it happened. Mm -hmm. January 26, 1788, the first fleet arrived with animals that had never been seen before in Australia. And it was at a time when still slavery uh, had not been abolished, that the vast majority of people who came here in the first place were prisoners, had no rights in that sense. And without thinking, um, apparently, those settlers, uh, the First Fleet and the prisoners all alike, the Europeans, if you will, faced a group of people who had a totally different, not just set of ethics, but a framework in which those ethics were set. The whole notion of, as you say, that the relationship between people and the land is, is different, that's not too surprising. What is surprising is the moral framework by which that decision is made which I find extraordinarily difficult to really comprehend. I mean, I think we can see similar 
issues with the colonization of the Americas, mm-hmm. especially around food systems. Mm. Right? For instance, corn was an important staple. Um, and the way in which corn is grown is through, um, in place where I grew up um, in the West, through the Three Sisters, right? You, you grow corn and you have, um, you know, your, your zucchinis coming up it. And this is all in your beans and everything grows together. But we have a problem with the way in which, and I think you could broadly, if you want to draw from James Scott, who's an amazing author, who's written a lot about, um, especially around food security and thinking about state projects, he's talked about, we have this notion that we see like a state. We always have these ideas that everything has to be orderly, put together, done mm. at a big level. And I maybe it's easiest to see this at a, well, I'll take one example. I know a friend of mine who works in Sydney is working, she's a soil scientist and she's working on drop planting and it turns out tilling the land and that we would see as kind of a a good you see these pictures of long rows ready Mm -hmm. for seeds Mm -hmm. and people talk about how beautiful that is but in reality that's destroying it's destroying the way in which the soil works in a healthy way Mm -hmm. it destroys the microorganisms the the way in which the the different root systems grab that soil so now moving to systems in which you drop plant rather than till but it does go against this notion that we're doing good, strong work by tilling the land and mm-hmm. just dropping seeds in it. Right. Um, and I think that's those are the kind of changes that tend to hit at people's notions of identity. But at the same time, what we've discovered, my colleague and I um, at UNSW Canberra, is when we've walked around and talked to people about wanting to change either agriculture through, you know, talking to farmers or people in rural communities, is they know very well things have to change. Yeah. Right. This is a piece of what we've known all along. If you really want to know how to make farming better, you'd best ask the farmers. And they often have the best kind of information. So, again, that comes back to that collaborative. If you go to those systems, we know we need sectoral reform. We know we need to talk about agriculture. It is an incredible um, addition to our climate change problems across many levels. But I think we'd find if we actually got out to talk to people, the ability to change that and shift that comes from those who are doing it and those who know best. And that's um, part of everyone feeling invested again in a system that listens to them. You don't have anything, pressures from multinational farming, agricultural companies, pressures from politicians to do a certain thing a certain way, you would actually make those decisions legitimately within a community, similar with the coal, those communities relying on coal. The ABC just did a piece on the Hunter Valley. The coal miners are saying, we know coal's dying, but we still want to live here. Mm-hmm. Give us yeah. some choices, right? That's right. And that's the, that's the idea of just in here. Right. And whether you want to move that to a moral frame, um, I think... It's perfectly fine to think ethically about how we begin to bring in, to use the corporate word, you know, bring in all the shareholders, Mm, talk to them about Mm. what are the ways in which we can make our communities stronger. And the trick with any kind of citizen democracy is our politicians have to listen. Mm -hmm. So we need to create those feedback loops, right, Right. that are stronger and better. If we revert to, to morality, of course, the difficulty is that it is relative. I mean, people say that there are objective morals and that there are obvious things like do no harm. But as we've just been suggesting, that agriculture is harmful. Uh, A lot of things that we do in life is harmful. Coal mining is harmful if we look at it from the point of view uh, of of the natural environment. And of human health, I might add. And of course, yes, of human health. Yeah. And so we have these issues now where a friend of mine wrote a book um, called The Eclipse of Morality 
where he argued that as individuals, we seem to have lost the ability to make moral decisions. We actually have handed it to somebody else. We've said governments or science or the church, you make the decisions for us. And so it would seem that one of the challenges that we face in things like climate change, and which I don't see addressed particularly in IPCC reports, is how do we restore our ability to be able to, be able to make moral decisions, moral choices, if you will? I think that's a fantastic um, insight and one that I think helps in this situation that we do, in fact, um, tend to one of the things about humanity, especially with our increasing technology. I'm not a Luddite, but one of the things that we do is we then um, outsource our moral decisions for technology to fix. Right. So that's one thing yep. about the scientific reports yep. where I see there's a lot of damage done in a, in a scientific community that... Um, and this is, of course, science is not homogenous, but who could say, we've done the science, we're done. When in reality, um, we really need to, to think about the ways in which we are, not, we are not going to be saved by technology as, as much as we are going to be saved by things like love and care mm -hmm. and um, and all of the things that we know we should have more of. Yeah. So I think the disappearance of morality maybe isn't so much that we're missing the systems, but we've moved into such an age in which you can you can say, oh, like, well, I'm sure Elon Musk will figure something out. <laughs> or, you know, Bill Gates will give enough money to someone right. and we'll have right. amazing solar wings in the sky. And, yes. and that doesn't take away from our human... Um, responsibility both to other humans regardless of race color creed gender or our relationship and responsibility to the more than human or the other than human world in which we live in so our health is reliant upon a planetary health so I think there's a lot of implicit things in here that are important to highlight and that's the job of people like you and I mm -hmm. and the people who are engaging with this material is we take it out of this. Yeah, we need, we know we need to talk about infrastructure and soft and hard limits and this and that. But at the same time, we need to say um, we care about Lismore as much as we care mm -hmm. about our own neighbors mm -hmm. or even an even more difficult jump. How can we care about people in faraway countries and not say like, well, I guess we'll be okay here in Australia for a while. Too bad about, um, too bad about all those island nations. Mm. Sorry about that. Marshall Islands or right. all of that. And I think that is what will help couple the social justice issues with this is a movement away from, yes, technology will be important, but our best technology for carbon capture is still a forest, right? It's mm -hmm. still a forest. It's still healthy mm -hmm. seas. Um, it's still the ability of our natural systems to be able to absorb and um, keep keep this thing within not necessarily a balance, but keep it within livable limits for all. That's an important step. I remember years ago, I did some work in Brazil and actually saw for the first time the scale of the deforestation of the Amazon, which is now accelerating at frightening paces. And here we have that dilemma yet again. People saying, well, we actually need to clear the jungle to grow soybean or to have cattle graze in order to feed the world. And the commentator, uh, I read one the other day, that said, okay, well, let's stop eating meat. That's really going back to technology in a sense, isn't it? It's sort of saying, well, if we fix that, then that's thing. But it doesn't question going back to what does it mean to be human? It doesn't. And partly um, 
partly our notions of being human are very much prefaced on the the torture and immiseration of millions of other lives, mm -hmm. billions of other lives on the mm -hmm. planet. So in that way, we can begin to rethink, um, I don't know, I hate to use the word practice that limits it, but our interspecies relationships um, can practice interspecies relationships and vice versa, right? right? More, more kindness and more thought toward um, the way in which we eat and the way in which we treat that which we eat I do think much of right much of agriculture is based on growing things to feed things that we eat. Mm, that's right. And of Absolutely. course simply doesn't change it simply by going to almond milk we know the ongoing problems with thinking about commercial big farming. But again it comes back to then why do we keep thinking big? This is where James C. Scott helps us I think. We need to start thinking small. Yeah. And something like Damien Gamow's movie 2044 um, talked about how we don't need any more big the, the time of big, you know, snowy hydro projects is likely over. What we need are neighborhood solar programs in which we're all sharing energy. distributed yeah. energy that are done at a small level. Yeah, um, when we leave, we give our sun to other people. When we're on vacation, we don't need to rely necessarily mm. on these big projects of modernity. Mm. Those are, I mean, I guess to wrap it back around to Anthropocene, since we're getting near our time, the Anthropocene tells us we need a different way of not of of understanding of of our knowledge about the planet and our knowledge about ourselves our holocene institutions are just that they're they're based on an idea of a movement from pre-modernity to modernity um, how we live now after the industrial revolution but it's not taking into account the fact that we need new and different knowledges mm -hmm. and much of it is exactly what you say mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um, and whether we're comfortable calling it morals or whether we'd rather call it ethics ethics always gives us a framework in which we can enact our personal morals in a way that's understood right. and has yeah. larger um, repercussions yeah for me uh, ethics are just a set of rules and the difficulty for me there is that people again are escaping They're sort of saying well here are the rules and here are the rights and so on without really saying well what's behind all of that why is this right or why is that wrong so that whenever we make a choice we're always making a choice that has moral significance, moral implication. And my own personal belief is if we thought more that way, rather than at worst saying, what's the law say? And then saying, well, you know, what's the sort of ethic behind all of that? What do people regard as okay and not okay? Versus what do I think? Really underneath all of this, what do I believe is right and what it is what I believe is wrong? And in terms of the way we live, and I'm, I'm with you entirely, that they're the sorts of questions we should be asking rather than saying, well, let's just reduce emissions as if that was going to address the issue. Right, because we know that um, we know that even now, according to this report, there is irreparable damage yeah. and we will not yeah. be able to go back. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I do think I do think it's a really important piece of it is we could call it maybe an earth ethics, mm -hmm. right, or an ethics of some uh, theorists have called this an ethics of entanglement. Right, that we're actually thinking about ethical frames that include our natural systems and don't necessarily keep those separate. So if we think about um, maybe a concrete example would be some of the people I'm working with um, through the law ideas around ecocide and making um, harming nature a crime is that 
we can't go to regular judges or judges that are trying no. human problems. Yeah. We need to create specialized courts and systems in which we can take these problems. We have knowledgeable jurors. Right. We have knowledgeable barristers, yep. knowledgeable judges that can make decisions based on what the land needs yep. and what these very important um, interconnected frameworks might need, which we can't necessarily ask from human judges, not that there's realms in which we need to kind of recreate our systems of law. Stephanie, this has been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let me end uh, with a quotation from the report from the co-chair, actually, Deborah Roberts, who says, Our assessment clearly shows that tackling all of these different challenges involves everyone. Governments, the private sector, civil society, working together to prioritise risk reduction, as well as equity and justice in decision-making and investment. And I'll leave you with those thoughts and look forward to listening and talking with you again. Thank you. Goodbye.